0: Season 2 of the Hard Yards is well underway And I'm very excited to bring you Episode 3 Proudly brought to you by the Tour Tee Without a doubt, the best golf tees on the We've market Get down to your local golf shop and pick up some Or get in call touch call with me call through call my Instagram man. at, Matty, Matt Guy at golf, And wow. I can pass on a discount code for you This week, my guest is from the, the mighty call Brisbane call Broncos He has had an incredible NRL career As well as two years in now. the English Super League I can't wait to hear about his journey to become an elite NRL player all the way from his humble beginnings in Papua New Guinea. It is my great pleasure to introduce David Mead to the show. Hi, David. How are you, mate? Hi, Matty. I'm great. Uh, Thanks, mate. Uh, It's a pleasure to be on here. Mate, I I tell the story about you and I playing golf, uh, which was back when you were playing at the Broncos, uh, which was probably uh, 2017, I think it was, um, and I think we had a game with uh, the one and only Benji Marshall and, and someone else, I think, that day. Yeah. I've always told the story to people who have ever asked me about what you like. As I've said, he's the nicest, nicest rugby league player I've ever met in my life. He's softly spoken, but just a genuine, lovely guy, interested in learning about golf when we're out there that day, but willing to talk to me about NRL, which I'm a fan of, obviously. So, mate, um, I hope that's an okay wrap for you.
1: Mate, that's uh, more than okay. I, I really appreciate it. It's uh, kind words. Um, but, you know, I think I wanted some free golf lessons that day, so that's probably why I was nice to you.
0: <laughs> well, mate, there's plenty more where they came from. So yeah. when this uh, NRL bubble and, and the season finishes for you, mate, we'll have to get you out to Nudgie and the new developed golf course out there and, and catch up for another hit. I look forward to it. So, mate, just on that, what's it like uh, at the moment for you guys as a playing group and and um, nearing the end of your season, unfortunately for the Bronx, not going to be in finals footy this year, but what's it been like um, throughout the season uh, with COVID and everything that's come your way, the ebbs and flows of restrictions and different levels of restrictions? What's that been like for you and the stresses and strains that that's placed on potentially the team and the family, more importantly? I
1: mean, will probably talk about it, you know, all the struggles we have, there's all, obviously you know someone else is um, always got it worse than you. So yeah, you know, yeah. I'm try and speak speak on that perspective because it uh, you know I, when I talk about things like this, uh, it sounds like I'm complaining a lot. So, but I will tell the story of the you know the reality of uh, the situation as as it unfolded throughout the year. Um, obviously, someone else always has it tougher than you. But you know what we experienced throughout the year was there was a lot of uncertainty. It was and especially at the you know first couple of rounds where we had to go to Sydney for two weeks. Um, we were based in Parramatta. Matter, had to go uh, fly to Melbourne and you know that was kind of the yeah, first right. first um, experience of um, you know my moment uh, um, with uh, in terms of like COVID and how to deal with it here in Australia. I, I experienced it in um, France last year. First two weeks of the season, you know we went down to Sydney. Played against Melbourne, uh, South Sydney. Uh, didn't get the results down there, but thankfully the you know um, those two weeks we were able to come back to Brisbane. Uh, so that was kind of like a little um, you know hiccup, uh, so to speak, along the way uh, in the first couple of rounds. But then we had a, lot, a fair bit of normality uh, after that. Uh, you know were, we were playing rounds home and away, uh, able to travel away and able to play at home as as like a normal NRL season. And then obviously, you know, the couple of weeks or a few months ago now, uh, you know, we've been in a bubble. I, I've lost count of how many weeks, to be honest. Uh, <laughs>
2: I'll bet.
1: Yeah. Um, we've been in a bubble and it's been level four restrictions. It, it was like that for a couple of weeks where we had to just be at home and then to training. Uh, yep. Couldn't even go out for a walk. You, you could go for a walk if you had a dog and uh, had a
0: mask on, uh, obviously. But did that force you into buying a dog, mate? Uh, no,
1: I didn't actually.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I probably should have bought a dog, but um, because I, I enjoy being outdoors and you know, walking around, um, taking my two boys for you know, kicking the footy around the park. Oh, yeah. Um, so that was you know, that was tough, um, especially for uh, Tenille, you know, having to do um, you know, the school drop offs, uh, daycare, yeah. as, as i said, someone's always got it worse, so I try and put it into that perspective, but and sure. you know, she found it, she found it difficult, like you know most of the other partners as well. And, you know, a lot of other people across, uh, you know, Queensland and Australia. Uh, so, you know, that was pretty tough. and But, you know, we've come out of that and uh, the restrictions have eased off a bit. Yeah, we're now able to, you know, have some family over for dinners, you know, lunches and stuff like that, go to family's houses. But we're still encouraged to, at the moment, not go to crowded places, you know, just in case, um, any cases uh, come up, you know, with, with COVID and, you know, anyone's been in those areas. So yeah, sure. it's all about, uh, you know, as we spoke off um, camera, off mic before that, it's all about minimising risk. And I think the NRO and the Queensland government are trying to do that so, you know, the, uh, the game can stay alive. Yeah. Uh, and in terms of our playing performance uh, in Brisbane, we'll probably talk about it a bit, a bit later. Um, it hasn't been the best year for us, but, you know, we've learnt a lot. It's a young squad and, you know, I think uh, I honestly believe that the you know, squad will be um, a lot better off for, you know, the year that we've had um, in the pre-season and into the future.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Mate, I, I, I was sharing with you as well that uh, outside Woolies yesterday, my son came running over to me and said, Dad, 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 there's Joe Often and Galway over there. This anyway, sure enough, it was. And I looked at him, he's a massive human being. I'll say that about him. And then I think the bigger issue for the NRL maybe isn't COVID causing issues for the for the um the players and the getting players on the park because I hopped in my car and I was just about to back out, put it in reverse, went to back out, looked in the rear view mirror, and there was a guy right behind my car with his trolley returning it to the trolley. Return right beside the car and it was Big Joe. So I've just about backed over the big fella. I reckon it probably would have done more damage to my Toyota Corolla than, than Joe offening Gaway at the size of him. But he's a big um, human, Joey. He, he is. He is a massive man. He's, I just couldn't get over the size of his legs and his calves and his legs. And mate, there's some massive humans out there. I was watching the other week and this wasn't where I planned to talk to you about this, but we might as well. Um, I was at the Cowboys, Broncos Cowboys game. And I can't think what his name is. He plays prop for the Cowboys. He was at Melbourne. Um, Jordan McLean. What was his name?
2: Jordan McLean.
0: Oh, yeah, Jordan McLean. And he's, yeah. we were two rows back right on the in goal, and he's literally standing, you know, 10 metres in front of us. And he is a human mountain of a man. And I thought to myself, who on earth would want to stand in front of that guy and try and tackle him? And then thinking about you this afternoon and how, you know, you're faced with tackling those blokes at times, but the bigger thing that amazes me, and I'd love you to talk about this, how on earth do you take those tough carries, Dave, when you're not a very big human being yourself? um, Sorry for saying that, but you're not. That's
1: all right. That's the reality.
0: And, and you, you, you take those tough carries, you know, when you might be the second hit up after a kick return and the line's set and they're just coming at you and there's three forwards or four forwards that you know you're about to run into. How, did, how on earth do you go about doing that, knowing, you know, what might come your way?
1: Mate, I still ask myself the same question uh, to this day because um, <laughs> there are some big humans out there, but sometimes there's a hooker standing next to them and that's the guy you look at and go, <laughs> all right, that's probably my uh, way out of here. So I try to run at that guy instead of the big guys. But obviously over the years of, um, you know, training, lifting weights and stuff like that, you get your confidence up, you you make your body um, used to, you know, getting hit by these big guys and, you know, uh, getting smashed. Um, but if you, I, I talked to Marcus by, uh, I don't know if oh, you're yeah. going, but
2: Yep. no he's been my
1: yeah he's been my mentor and he's someone i uh, really enjoyed watching uh, i looked up to obviously png as well i enjoyed watching him play and i remember meeting him when I was 19 in the world cup and he said mate when you get the he hes set it with conviction look me in the eyes and said, but when you get that ball you run as hard as you can it doesn't matter who's in front of you because if you run as hard as you can and there's You might get smashed the first eight times, but I guarantee you the ninth, tenth time, they're going to be tired and you'll get past it. So it's just a matter of building up that confidence to cop the hits those first eight times (laughs) and then then eventually getting a result. But uh, all the training helps, the weights and stuff like that. And then it's about um, convincing yourself. That's probably the biggest thing. Uh, Convincing yourself that you can... Uh, even though you're smaller than a lot of these guys, you can you know, uh, get hit by them, hit the ground, and then uh, get up and play the ball faster because you know, they're a lot bigger than if you can find a little bit of space next to them, then
0: you'll be okay. Yeah, amazing. Mate, I, on top of all of that, I was, doing some, I was crunching some numbers. You, you, might, you might know this, but you might not. So I was crunching some numbers um, earlier, and I was looking at some stats for you for the year. Um, and I was looking at the post-contact meter stats. Do you know these numbers?
1: Uh, No, I don't keep track of them, to be honest.
0: honest. Yeah, okay. So on average in this year's NRL games that you've played, you've averaged 38 metres of post-contact gain for for a game, right? So on average. Fascinatingly to me, Xavier Coates, who looks like a much bigger human being than you are, uh, he averages 25 post-contact metres. So uh, any, any thoughts on why or how that works? And my thoughts were, well, Xavier's bigger, so his centre of gravity is maybe a bit higher, so it's harder for him to be lower and, you know, be able to drive those legs through the contact. But then someone like a Corey Oates, who's a bit more like Xavier Coates than he is David Mead, is 61 post-contact metres per game. Um, And then I've got one more question on this post-contact meters I'd love you to delve into, but any thoughts as to why someone like yourself, or if you think about the league, across the league, someone who's probably one of the more elite post-contact meters players in the game is Brian Totu, and he is not a big human either.
1: Yeah, I think um, this is the first time someone's ever asked me this question, So. There's going to be a fair bit of guessing in this, but (laughs) I think uh, (laughs) my guess is um, a lot of the times Xavier is catching the ball and getting hit. Yep. So they're trying to target him. You know, they're trying to keep the ball in the air, so you know his his carries are less. You know that. So his threats less. You know, Um, that probably has got something to do with it. Uh, He's getting tackled as soon as he catches the ball. I've never really thought about post-contact meters because I think it's only new to me. It's only been new the past couple of years. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you're, I guess if you're getting those numbers up higher, then it's good because, you know, you're helping your forwards out because your forwards, for sure. Uh, they, they run back um, less and save a bit, bit more energy if you're carrying the ball, you know, first, second or third tackle and trying to get as many meters as you can. Uh, someone like um, Brian Torr, he, he's probably the best I've ever seen at, you know, just carrying the ball in general. He's, in my opinion, um, the best that I've ever seen in terms of work rate and how effective he is at getting the ball from his trial line to as close to the halfway line as he can.
2: Because Incredible.
1: Uh, I, man, I've never ever seen one of, advice, one of the other ones I can think of like back yeah. in the day. Um, man, you but uh, there's not many other wingers that I can think of who have uh, done it as well as he can, um, in terms of post contact meters and who does you know how much or how much less. I couldn't give you a very clear answer of uh, why that is, to be honest.
0: I, I think you've painted a good picture, and some of those players you mentioned, Utai and um, Vatavai, and and it would be fascinating to be able to somehow um, gauge their their leg strength output, you know, for those sorts of guys, because Toto looks like from below the waist down, his, his unbelievable with his muscles and his muscle definition. And um, Matty Utah was the same, uh, incredibly, you know, thick from below the waist down. Um, so it'd be fascinating to see that um, leg drive, if there was a leg drive number, you know, and how much yeah. output their muscles could put into a leg drive. I think that'd be interesting. The other thing that you you just alluded me to when you were chatting there, maybe, was if you've got someone like a Corey Oates who's renowned at post being decent with his post-contact meters, that maybe what you said about Xavier is they're kicking the ball in the air to him and he's less of a threat with his post-contact meters coming out. So they're giving, you know, that's going to hopefully box the Broncos into that, you know, into their back right corner. If they kick to, kick to um, Xavier uh, because Corey Oates is always making more metres on the return?
1: Yeah. It's, uh, it certainly can be a tactic because I remember when we played um, Penrith, you know, we didn't want uh, Brian Todd to get the ball and be able to run Absolutely. 20 metres into contact. You know, We wanted him catching the ball and then uh, getting tackled. Yeah. Um, To the guy's credit, he still made over 250 metres the very first game that we played at home, even though he was getting tackled upon... Now, Crofty was putting the ball up in that corner. Tavita was getting into it. Um, But, you know, the guy, he's a tough guy. He's... um, You know, you you look and go, man, he can't do it again the next week, but then he does it again. Yeah. Surely not again. But he just keeps proving you wrong, and, you know, he's done it for two, three years now, and he he just keeps going.
0: And he looks... He looks like he's busted every game. Like, it looks like, oh, yep, we've finally broken him. And then he runs for another 100.
1: (laughs) Mate, it doesn't surprise me if he's a bit busted up because of how hard he's working. (laughs) Um, But he he must, you know, he must be looking after his body really well, doing his preparation right. And, you know, the whole team must be because, you know, they've all performed really well the past couple of years and
0: uh, certainly doing that again this year. Yeah, it's amazing. Now, mate, let's rewind a little bit. Born in Papua New Guinea. Tell us a little bit about David Mead growing up in Papua New Guinea and what that was like. And then uh, when you see fit, tell us the story of how you transitioned to Australia, why you transitioned to Australia and and, and what that um, looked like for you.
1: Oh, my, my earliest memories were
0: of, uh, you know, living in, uh, with my grandparents
1: and my mum and, and a couple of her siblings and their kids. So one family, there's a four-bedroom house, one family living in each bedroom. Oh, wow. three, four, three, four kids in each room. Uh, mattress on the floor. Uh, nice big house. You know, life as I knew it was. You know, we did pretty well compared to most other people in the village. Um, I remember growing up. You know, before school, I'd be, I'd go to the garden. They call it subsistence farming. You know, planting yams and taros. I did a lot of that with my grandparents and a few yeah, of my wow. cousins. And so that was a couple of k's out of the village. So you know, maybe I was five, six years old. Um, I'd catch. We'd jump on the back of a youth that was going from the village to town. They'd give us a lift from there to the farm, drop us off, and then we'd walk like a k or two to where the you know the farm it was. And then we'd do like a lot of a fair bit of weeding, uh, planting yams and taros, bananas, and I did that for a couple of years with my grandparents. Sometimes I prefer to do that than going to school. And, but you know, once I was able to go to school at six, seven years old, uh, then my grandparents and mum told me you need to do school work, uh, school first. Uh, school was in the village. And you know, sometimes you're walking barefoot to the school um, like most of the other kids do. Sometimes you got shoes and you know, it's the village. It's like dirt. Know the ground's dirt, yeah. Uh, it's a dirt, dirt road from the main highway to it's a couple of K's drive into the village. That's dirt road as well, plenty of potholes. Um, but it was a very simple and humble uh, upbringing, you know. We're, we're one of the coastal villages, so half the village is on water, so there's people who built stilts on the water and built the houses on there. Wow, and the, other, the other half is on uh land, so. You know, you've got a couple of general stores in the village that sell, you know, your rice, uh, tinned meat, and uh, in the in the afternoons, most uh, weekdays in the afternoons, there's a fish market in the center of the village, and your family's going and buying fish. Um, when I was growing up, I remember Mum going to work a lot, so I spent a lot of time with my grandparents if I wasn't at school, and. I saw a lot. I saw them, you know, work pretty hard to, you know, plant their vegetables to uh, provide for, you know, their kids and um, their their grandkids. I remember waking up six, seven a.m. and my grandmother would be um, heating up or buttering bread, and we'd dip bread in in tea, and you know that was our breakfast, you know, uh, most morning. And for dinner, we'd have, you know, have a bit of you know, sweet potato yam cooked on fire have a bit of a bit of tin meat or you know fish that was caught from some of the fishermen and we'd buy it, buy it for like you know 80 cents a dollar 50 uh, equivalent yeah uh, and that's just the way life was when I was you know from the age of uh, as far as I can remember to the age of 11 12 years old when I moved to australia
0: mate do you ever like it sounds unbelievable doesn't it you know and and having been brought up in australia and um, townsville for me Um, but in a house and, you know, our own rooms or shared room with my brother, you know, not one shared room with the whole family, but a part of that lifestyle that you just explained to me, I reckon sometimes, do you ever think about that, like how nice that would be to do that again and not have the stresses of the world and the the financial stresses of mortgages and all that sort of stuff? Do you ever think, oh, man, it would be nice to go back to that simplicity?
1: Oh mate, it it's the best thing ever. Oh, I just all I remember was waking up. You know, you're playing with your cousins, and then uh, you know breakfast is ready. You go and sit down together. You're eating your, you know, bread, buttered bread, dipping it in tea, talking. You obviously don't understand the stress and struggles the parents have gone through to yeah, provide sure. for you. You know, so as a kid, you're thinking this is the best thing ever. Yeah. Um, you get ready, you go to school while your parents have gone to. A, um, I was brought up with. Um, Single mum. They they got married early, and uh, things happened. Uh, my dad was a Australian guy who lived there in Port Moresby for a while. Yep. And you know, I'm still understanding the story of uh, what happened there. But the upbringing that I knew uh, growing up was the best thing ever. But I always had this, uh, you know, thought in in my head. Uh, you know, what was my dad like? Who was he? Because yeah. my cousins, yeah. my cousins are with their mum and dads. Um, only my mum's in the house, um, and I, I'm half Australian, so I'm a bit light skinned and my cousins are a, bit, a fair bit darker than me. Yep. And so there was always that thing of, uh, yeah, your dad's uh, a white white guy, you know,
2: yeah, uh, Australian guy,
1: and I always wondered what he was like, you know. Uh, Did you never met him. I met him when I when I came over to visit my auntie, who's uh, she was married to an Australian. Uh, guy as well, but he lived in Port Moresby, k and
2: And
1: so when when their eldest son got into uni, uh, my auntie moved to Lismore, uh, Southern Cross Uni down there. And one year when I came to visit them for Christmas, uh, I think I was nine, 10 years old, uh, my grandparents, uh, my dad's, my biological dad's parents, they used to send gifts every year for my birthday and Christmas to me and my mum. So that was a way that you know I felt connected to to him and to yeah. them. Uh, very nice thing for them to do. Um, he didn't really have much to do with it. It was my grandparents who were who I caught up with a lot. And when I went to visit them one year, it, you know, they were with my auntie when I went to Lismore, at the country town of Laidley, uh, oh, yeah. two, two hours west from here. Yeah, I went there and uh, I met him there for the first time. You know, I was pretty young and excited to meet him. Uh, seemed like a very nice guy, uh, very happy, and I was pretty happy to meet him. Like, it was just like, oh, okay, this is, you know, my dad that I never really knew. Amazing. Um, I, yeah, I was eight, and then um, that was kind of the only time that I got to meet him, and then maybe another one, once, yeah, uh, yeah. one more time uh, after that, but. No, that was that was interesting, you know I didn't really know how I felt about that. I felt pretty it felt pretty good to like actually see him. yeah, for sure. yeah but then I hear stories of you know what happened uh, during the marriage. Uh, I wasn't there, so uh, who am I to judge it kind of thing. Yeah um, but it's always been um, something I've been curious about and the, the older I get, the more I realize that a lot of my mates are in a similar boat, you know. Mm. Guys who have never met their parents, uh, mum or dad, and always wondered what it was like.
0: Does it give you, you know, you mentioned before going down the park and kicking the footy around with your boys, and how much you cherish that? And oh, I can only imagine knowing you as a as a as a as a man, how important you you feel your job is as a as a dad to those boys and as a role model to those boys and as a husband to your wife. Um, does it, does it make it, do you ever feel like, man, I still wish, I still hope that one day that I could spend more time getting to know my, my actual dad?
1: Um, I, I met him again when I just, um, when I started to play, you know, first grade and, that didn't go too, uh, That didn't go down too well with me. Yeah. You know? Okay. Uh, I thought he probably should have put in a bit more effort. Yep. If he wanted to be in my life. Yeah. Sure. Um, before anything like that happened, you know, um, you know, my auntie did reach out for, you know, um, a bit of, you know, connection, you know, um, a bit of support while I was, you know, getting education in Lismore when I uh, turned twelve. But I don't think he really wanted too much to do with it. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so, I, um, he reached out and I sent a long letter to me explaining the whole situation in Port Moresby. You know about because the lifestyle, life, life the life in PNG is like whoever's doing well, they look after everyone else, and it's a yeah, fair right. bit of pressure. On, it's a fair bit of pressure on that individual, and if you're uh, if you're not used to that type of uh, culture and you get uh, and you marry into it and you're brought into it, it can be very hard to. I, I can see uh, why it was hard for him because everyone would have been, you know, leeching off him and trying to, you know, get get you know money, food off him and stuff like that. that would have been a fair bit of pressure. Yeah, probably not something he expected to uh, marry into. But so I understood that he wrote me a, a long letter and. Um, I've kind of. I never really communicated openly with him how I felt about it, but it's I I just ignored phone calls and stuff like that. Maybe one day I will, you know, would like to, you know, resolve that one day just to make it clear, you know, because I sit back and think sometimes, but then um, I don't blame him for anything that's happened in the past to, you know, my mum and how, you know, how. I guess lost, you felt. Um, you know, waking yeah, so. up one morning and he had uh, he had gone. Uh, I, maybe I did blame him when I was growing up as a teenager. But now, I, uh, the older I get, the real uh, the more I realize what the culture in PNG is like and how much pressure it is for you know one person to support a community. It's it's very hard. So, but I do blame him for a lot of good stuff that happens in my life. Like you know, cherishing those moments with my two boys. I look at him and go, man, I'll. Because of what's happened to me yeah, sure, know, growing sure. up. I, I I actually put it consciously put that extra effort into go, Oh, you want to kick the footy for another fifteen minutes, it's dark, dinner's ready, you know, let's kick the footy. Dinner can wait. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah, you want you want
0: your boys to have every opportunity to Oh mate,
1: every opportunity know. and every minute I get to
0: spend with them um, is because of the
1: lessons that I learned. Yeah. Um what my,
0: what my
1: dad taught
0: me by uh, not being there, you know. And, mate, I, I'm a big believer in, and certainly having, you know, you may not know I had a bad head fall, a fall last year and hit my head really badly and I had 60 stitches from the front to the back. And um, even before that, I, I've always been of the opinion that you never know what life's got around the corner for you. And so every moment should be a cherished moment. And every time you get to spend with your family, you know, you want to spend that time with them and you want to be out there kicking for an extra 15 minutes or, you know, hanging out um, with your loved ones and the people that matter the most to you. So um, mate, good on you. It's awesome. And thanks for sharing. I know that may not have been an easy part of the, the story. Does that sort of tie in with, obviously you moved down to Australia at that sort of age and lived with your auntie in Lismore and that's where you went to school and at some stage down the track you changed your name from Moore to Mead what we know you as today so you were David yeah. Moore um, can you tell us a little bit about that story mate if it's okay yeah
1: I am uh, my biological dad, uh, dad's last name was Moore um, and so my auntie who took me to go to Lismore uh, her last name was Mead and her partner, you know, he lived in PNG for as long as, I, and I know, um, since I was born. And he supported. He was the guy who was like, "All right, this this community needs help. I'll, you know, I'll give them jobs." Uh, he helped support the whole family. Wow. Uh, looked after my mum, my grandparents. He built the house that that we lived in, the you know, four bedroom house, without living in it, you know, and supported his uh, wife's brothers and sisters. So incredible. When I turned when I turned twelve, they brought me to um, Lismore, Australia, and they said, you know, because I, because I my dad was Australian, it was easy for me to get citizenship. Yeah, okay. And what that what they did, uh, my auntie and her husband, and my uncle, they always, you know, helped other siblings and their kids, you know, get education. They paid for education, got them to live with them, and you know, supported them until they could go on and help. You know, support their own families. Uh, something incredible. You know, um, incredible people. Uh, I call them. I called her my mum and dad since when. When I moved to Lismore, so when I turned the age of eighteen, I was able to legally change my name myself. Yep. Without without the signature of both parents, so that had to. That was the main reason why I changed it to Mead. I was like, um, you know, it's something I've always wanted to do. And now that I'm able to do it, I'll do it because, you know, this is the family I want to represent. Because when I was 17, I, uh, Johnny Cartwright from the Titans, he came down to Northern Rivers, watched a, a game, and he said, mate, uh, you've got some potential. Uh, the Gold Coast Titans are coming in uh, 2007. This was 2006 that he you know, gave me a, like one of those uh, contracts. Yeah. And he said, uh, you've got an opportunity. Um, if, you'd, if you'd like to you come uh, play with us. And I was still in school, so I was, you know, in huge shock. I couldn't believe it. I went back. <laughs> I went back and told my auntie. I was seventeen at the time, and I had a fair bit of time to think about it over those years. I was like, if I was to ever make, you know, NRL or anything like that, you know, I'd, I'd like to represent this family and have their name. Yeah! Wow. Uh, showcasing. So I think that was the main reason why I changed it from more to me.
0: Yeah! Wow, that's awesome. So they, I mean, they obviously gave you that education, gave that opportunity. And from from the age of 12 through to when you sort of got out through school and John Cartwright arrived, was rugby league the thing? Was that the sport or was there other sports? Or when you were coming out of Papua New Guinea, did you play any footy up there or as a young fella? Uh,
1: I didn't play any organised sports, but, you know, in the village we just, uh, you know, found an empty Cordial bottle or a Coke bottle and just kick it around the you know. Yeah. Uh, got a group of four or five guys together, opposing teams, you know, giving ourselves NRL players' names at the time. Who and were you, mate? I uh, was Steve Brenner from uh, oh, Branco, The Pearl. Right? The Pearl, yeah. Uh, oh, good. And uh, a lot of times though, I named myself up, him. So I enjoyed watching him. Um, so that was, and I played a little bit of cricket. I played a yep. fair bit of cricket um, when I moved to Lismore. It was a big uh, cricketing um, town. I yep. went to Kadena High School, which I think uh, Adam Gilchrist went to. Oh, everyone, wow. Everyone told me that. So I, that was my claim. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so I played a fair bit of cricket uh, in summer and then rugby union between the age of 12 to 17. Wow. And then the, the year that I changed from rugby union to play rugby league was when the it just happened by chance that, Titans were scouting around the northern rivers and then I got an opportunity to you know, play my either second or third rugby league game and scored a couple of tries and by chance uh, Cardi was there watching the games and uh, you know this contract uh, showed up but you know speaking on that it was just it's uh, I always wanted to you know play NRL. I didn't know how I'd you know ever get a chance to get there. Yeah, I think a fair bit of luck had to do with it because of you know how close the goalpost is to northern New South Wales. Yep, and yeah, it kind of that kind of guided me in the direction of um, rug taking rugby league seriously. Otherwise, I think uh, I back myself as a you know, probably a cricketer uh, playing for <laughs> either New South Wales or Queensland.
0: <laughs> oh, mate, I'm sure you would have succeeded at that as well. So, you obviously sign for the Titans and come on up and you um, debut in 2009, I think it was, is that correct? Yep. Against uh, St. George, in a in a win 28 to 24 at Skilled Park. Um, and you came off the bench that night. What, or that day, what was that like? Uh, NRL debut, fulfilling some dreams and, you know, finally getting to run out and, on stage, were you sitting on the bench, absolutely nervous as all hell, or what?
1: Yeah, nailed it right there. Um, <laughs> I think I was, I was sitting on the bench, just you know, sweating, my, my armpits of sweating, and I just felt nervous. Uh, you know, I didn't. Chris Walker was injured the week before, and he was, uh, you know, we were waiting on him to confirm whether he was going to play or not. Yep. So I turned up on the night. Uh, Cardi told me, come uh, prepared like you're playing, but it hadn't been confirmed yet. So, as soon as I walked in the dressing sheds, about an hour and a half before kickoff, Cardi said, uh, May you be making your debut tonight? And I was, I just could not believe it. Eh? I was like, No way. Um, that, that's kind of how I felt, you know? He said, Yeah. Um, you know, I won't start here, but I'll, I'll bring you off the bench. So uh, just stay warm, be ready. Uh, I'll bring you in like you know, halfway through the uh, first half. And then, uh, yeah, it kind of all just went from there. Now, I just remember sitting in the dressing sheds and talking to Matty Rogers. He was trying to give me some confidence, you know. He said, mate, you got nothing to worry about. you played against Australia, New Zealand and England only a couple of months ago in the World Cup. Yeah, right. For the Kumuls? For the Kumuls, yeah. So that was in 2008 in November. And he said, if you can play against those guys, you'll be fine playing NRL. So that kind of made me feel a
0: little bit yeah, better. Yeah, that's great know? advice from Maddie, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and that made me feel, uh, feel a lot better. And when I eventually got into the field, uh, I was up against uh, Wendell Saylor. And I, was, <laughs> wow, how big... I looked at him and said, how big is this guy? I hope he doesn't run him <laughs> uh, and, the,
0: and the great part about that is that he would have spoken to you in – you know, in in the third person. He said, the Dell's going to run over the top of you, meaty. You know, like, you know how he talks.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Mate, I remember him, like, pointing at me and, like, saying things, but I couldn't hear him. And I was was trying not to look at it because I was, like, I was real nervous. I was like, nah, don't let him get to you because he's going to put you off your game. (laughs) Uh,
0: I think uh, as wingers go, there's – the Dell was one of those imposing figures, wasn't he? I think Jonah Lomu from – the All Blacks was another one that you just would, like, never, ever want to be standing on the other side of the field against.
1: Yeah, well, you're looking at them running up the middle of the park and they're running over the
0: forwards. front rowers and the forwards.
1: You know? I'm <laughs> like, if he gets the ball and it's one-on-one, where do I tackle him,
0: you know? <laughs> I, was playing, um, I was playing a bit of AFL. I'd had a bit of a break from golf, and so I was playing some Aussie rules and I was playing in the QAFL here in Brisbane, and uh, for the mighty Western Magpies over at Chelmer. And I remember we were playing the Brisbane Lions reserve grade side who played in the first grade competition in the QAFL. And uh, there was a a throw in from the sideline, a ball in from the sideline. And my coach was screaming at me to pick, drop back 10 metres and pick up this loose man that was there. And as I turned around, it was Clark Keating. Now, Clark Keating was a ruckman, so he's like, Over two meters tall, and he felt like he was a meter wide. And I've got to go and stand next to this guy. And I'm not very big. I'm you know 178 centimeters. He's got 30s, and all I remember doing was going, please come along the ground ball, please come along the ground ball. (laughs) (laughs) Just so he didn't stomp on top of me and take a specky. But um, yeah, far out. Some some interesting times. So we ended up having a pretty good sort of debut year, um, played a bunch of games made and and scored a, a few tries, um, 14 tries in all um, for that. And you would have been pretty happy, I reckon, going into, uh, you know, your second season the next year, which went well as well, but then you get an injury mid-season when, you know, you're probably flying along pretty good and thinking, how good is this? How easy is this NRL caper? And then you get an injury. So, what's that like as a second year, still really young, um, to get an injury, a foot injury, I think you had? Um, talk us through that, mate.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I was pretty happy with the first year of first grade. You know, they gave me a lot of confidence yeah, uh, sure. going into the next preseason. And, you know, I had a good preseason in 2000, end of 2009, and started the year off well in 2010. And then to get a, like an injury, like a Liz Frank injury, which was, uh, I believe, six months uh, rehab and you know, you're out for the rest of the year. You, it's, it's kind of new to you, having the yeah, long-term sure. injuries. So,
0: Can you explain uh, what it is, Liz Frank injury? Uh,
1: I think it's like a, it's in the middle of your foot, and I think some of the ligaments uh, – I think it's a ligament injury, and it's, it's a big tear or something like that, and it takes a long time. It needs an operation to heal up. Okay, so every in.
0: time you then either walk or run, it stretches that ligament and obviously causes you great pain.
1: Yeah, obviously, you, you know, your feet take the whole weight of your body. So, yes. You know, and every time you put your foot down, you know, your, 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 your ligaments are working. Um, I got three screws put in there and they're about, you know, two, three inches long each. And, you know, they were in there for a couple of months and then when they got taken out and I was able to do my rehab, I was so, I was pretty nervous to like, even like walk normally. Yeah. I, I, I limped for about three, four months. And then my physio said, you just need to trust that your, your foot's going you know, to, it felt like it was going to tear again. Yeah. If I just um, did my normal running motion. So that took a couple of weeks to, you know, gain confidence to, you know, push through that. But initially, um, you know, you got all the support staff around you, um, coaches, players, Uh, saying, unlucky, you know, we're here for you if you ever need a chat. And you're doing a lot of rehab and stuff. And there's a couple of other guys in there with you. So it's not really like you're on your own. There's a lot of support there. Um, I think if you're doing it on your own and you've got no trainers, no players around you, that can be a lot harder. But when there's people around you doing it, um, you know, it makes life a little bit easier. So I I think it's really important having that support around you. You know, if you've got like an injury or something like that, and if you, if you don't, then, you know, having a training partner or something like that uh, certainly helps.
0: Yeah, great advice for anyone out there who's catching a glimpse or a, a listen to this podcast that, you know, if you are going through some injury, just making sure you've got um, some people you can chat to as you go through the process and, and reach out to guys um, who might have been through something similar before. Um, and I guess you, as you get closer and, you know, the light, Starts to come up at the edge of the horizon for return, you get pretty excited. It must be tricky not to sort of overdo things a little bit and think, "Yeah, I'm ready to go." Yeah, well, that's the
1: story of uh, you know m- uh, my life uh, in terms of playing and you know and other guys in the game. Now you're excited to get back to playing as quick as you can, and sometimes your body feels a bit better than um, the actual progress of it. Yeah, And you're trying to convince yourself and the physio trainers that it's progressing better. But, you know, rather than trusting their advice and their expert opinion, you try and push that. But, you know, they, they, if you've got a good physio and good trainer, they'll, they'll keep you in line and keep you honest to make sure that, you know, you're not coming back too early to, you know, potentially harm yourself again for longer term uh, damage. So I've, I've been pretty fortunate that, you know, I've, besides uh, that's kind of the only long term injury I've ever had. And Yeah, wow. Everything else has been a six, eight weeks max, and I have a heaps of good people around to help me understand that you know there's a process that we need to trust, and if you stick with it, you'll you'll come back and you'll be stronger and better than ever. If you go outside of that, um, you'll get frustrated with me for letting you um, go in earlier than you were supposed to, you know? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, but you know, I, I trust one hundred percent. in in what they're saying.
0: It's a bit like um, you telling them how to be a physio and then telling you how to play footy.
1: Exactly. (laughs) That's exactly how it is, yes.
0: (laughs) I've always, i I marvelled throughout his entire career at how infrequently Cam Smith ever spent time on the sidelines.
1: Mate, I do too. I I can't believe the amount of work he's done, um, the amount of games he's played, and the intensity yeah, of which he played, um, you know, for his body to hold up like that. You know, he's he's done really well in his career. And it's someone you look at and go, man, like, he's uh, his physique especially, you know, you look at, yeah. go, wow, there's, there's guys who are, like, built like
2: yeah,
1: Arnold Schwarzenegger and um, Cameron Smith. who's But he, he, he shows that, you know, technique is more effective than, looking, uh, you know, like uh, a bodybuilder. So uh, if there's anything to learn from the, this uh, this game, I think and having a look at uh, Cameron Smith and, you know, the way he played the game, uh, you certainly don't have to be a, a bodybuilder to be able to uh, play rugby league, uh, you know, for that a period of
0: time. I think it, it says a lot for your sport that, you know, and for the kids out there who are thinking about or dreaming about it or, you know, playing with a Coke bottle in the street, you know, playing rugby league and I'm going to be David Mead today, you know, the little winger on the sideline, that yeah. there, there is all shapes and sizes. And we spoke about Brian Totu, who's unbelievable. He's little fella. Um, you spoke about Pangai Jr. who's enormous. Um, you know, there's all these uh, guys, Payne Haas, who's one of your teammates is, you know, standing alongside him, you must be, you know, looking upwards like, you know, yeah. uh, it's David and Goliath almost, you know?
1: Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, it's anyone's game, really. You know, I, I came through the ranks. I think our Titans team was a bit smaller than most teams. We had uh, Matty Rogers, uh, probably 87 kilos, Preston Campbell, Scotty Prince. Yeah. Uh, all very much smaller than the opposing teams. Um, you know, Preston, for example. He, He's he amazing no fear of you know that's how where I got my inspiration to run hard as well he just had no self-preservation for uh, someone his size or even his son playing the game now you know yeah he's cool Mate, he is uh, cool he's electric and and you've got no fear you know he's I can't wait till he feels out and you know see how uh, strong he becomes but I' watching him play against uh, Melbourne Storm the other night and you know how hard he was carrying the ball at some of the big forwards. Uh, it certainly
0: proves that it's if you really want the, to play the game bad enough, uh, you can't, you don't have to Any look shape a certain or size, race. and it's probably just understanding your skill set within your body shape and what you're capable of, I guess.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, now some wingers are short, skinny, and far. Now you look at uh Corey Thompson from the Titans, oh, he's you know, amazing, break, yeah, breaks more tackle than anyone, and he's not the biggest winger, uh, just because he, he's very elusive, you know. Yeah. Uh, as you said, Brian Tor, and then you got uh, big Corey H, uh running off the back fence, not not stepping much, you know, just running hard. So <laughs> I think if you understand your physical attributes and how to maximize them,
0: then yep. uh I think you'll be fine. Interestingly, going back to those post-contact meters that we spoke about earlier, the fascinating thing, and and, and you might have comment on this. I said I was going to come back to this. Um, in round four, you played against the Melbourne Storm. And then in round 12, you played against the Melbourne Storm as well. So your average was 38 metres per game post-contact metres. And against the Storm, you average close to a third, only a third of that. So 13.5 post-contact metres against Melbourne Storm. Any thoughts as to why on earth Melbourne Storm are as good as they are? And how is it that you know, your post-contact meters get cut by two-thirds against a team like Melbourne Storm?
1: Melbourne Storm is a team that will grab you and they'll strangle you. Um, From winger to winger, if they grab a hold of you and you don't have any bit of space to move or work with, they'll squeeze you uh, around your ribs, around your legs, around your hips, and so you won't have much, you know, space or leg drive. You know, I've always noticed that, playing against that team, but, you know, you need to, I guess Melbourne, you need to move the ball around a bit more so there's a, it creates a bit more space. Yeah. Or, or you just play like, you know, how Canberra Raiders did a few years ago and those big fours just running hard, you know, staying in the one spot. Because um, Melbourne are so good at what they do, you know, in that wrestling area. Yeah. That, you know, they're,
0: they're a long way ahead
1: of in, uh, in terms of wrestling and technique. Uh compared to the rest of the competition, I believe.
0: Do you feel because it it's been that's been publicized a bit, hasn't it? You know, and there's been um negative press come their way and and potentially new rules maybe even brought in, like you know, the chicken chicken wing and you know, all well, these things. Go, yeah. Uh what are what does the players feel about it? Do you just feel like, well, you know what? They're playing inside the, the The rules of the game, so fair game. Or do you guys get a bit dirty or shirty at it? Uh,
1: You can be as dirty as you want, or you know, agree with you know everything they're doing. Uh, You have to face them, so yeah. uh, There's no point in you know complaining about it. You just got to go out and you know play your best against them. So um, I think they're doing everything within the rules of the game. So. Uh, me personally I've never had an issue with what they do you just yeah great you you, you kind of look at it and go man they are good at yeah I'll pay attention to some of the details stuff they're doing when I'm watching them and go man they 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 know how to play the ball down to the second so it gives their defensive line time to get set and get their line speed and um, you know teams have come close Penrith are pretty good at that and other teams come close to it Um, but consistently over this past decade, I feel they've done that um, better than uh, most other teams.
0: Do you feel like sometimes watching them, and this is just an observer uh, and and a massive fan of the game, I feel like sometimes they are so good that they move the attacking team into the space they want them to be in. Do you know what I mean? So, like they'll they'll come up fast. You know, maybe if they want to keep the team in the in the pocket, in the you know coming out of their left left side, they'll move up so fast in the centre that it sort of almost umbrellas them into a space where they can just contain, contain, contain until the kick comes.
1: Yeah, well, they're, yeah, they're a team that's good at you know putting the ball in the corner and limiting the amount of metres you get. You know, especially you know they don't want you to get to halfway. Yeah, before you kick the ball. So, what you're saying there about umbrellaing a team, and you know that's just that's to stop teams. Most teams try to do it, uh, but they don't do it as good as
2: yeah. Melbourne. Yeah, okay.
1: Um, and the whole thing about umbrellaing the team is, is just say so the ball isn't spread across the field, and then you know forwards have to run across, run a long way to reload, and then have to get off the line. Um, so you know they're certainly real good at doing that, and you know I think most teams are trying to you know, replicate that as well.
0: But basically, what you're saying is they're just bloody good at everything they do. Right, they're very clinical, they're skillful, and, they you
1: know, they're good at wrestling. Um, they've just got a good system that, you know, players seem to go there and, you know, fit in really well with the system. Uh, they learn it, they apply it. You know, someone like Justin Olin, for example. Unbelievable. Um, Comes into the NRL system in 2017 uh doesn't play much first grade and it's now two thousand and one, uh twenty twenty twenty-one and you know four years of NRL um outside of the hunters outside of PNG and he's in my opinion my opinion top three centers in the game. Yeah. And you know and other guys like you know Remus Smith and uh, George Jennings they've gone there and you know they're superstars of the game now because of the way they, they play down there.
0: It's got a lot to do with the coaching hasn't it and you would think that most people who go there, um, Bellamy gets them to be at their absolute pinnacle, and improve them, improve their skill set, and get them playing their absolute best footy. And the guys that that doesn't kind of happen with, and and can't step up to that level, you see them moved on.
2: Yeah,
1: um, you know, I'd love to see, you know, how they, you know work their training uh, sessions, you know, all throughout the year just to, you know, see what they do to you know, help these guys that go from other clubs who are, you know, they're not really at their potential. And then when they get to Melbourne, they, you know, they get, they reach their potential. So, you know, I'd love to be able to see you know, how they operate down there because, you know, it seems to work pretty well.
0: Mate, as a Queenslander, I'm hoping that that happens for Xavier Coates when he goes there and it turns him into an absolute superstar. He's already a star of the game, but I just feel like under Bellamy, he could just go to another level and, you know, be um, the cemented winger for Queensland for the next 10 years. Yeah,
1: it's exciting for him, but, like, you know, we we
0: forget how young
1: Xavier is. He's He's so young. He's only 20 years old and debuted, what, uh, last year? And, you know, he's played a handful of games and, you know, because he's played Origin, he's expected to do a lot more than yeah. what he is currently. Um, you know, good thing about him going to Melbourne is he's got a bit of experience now. Um, um, luckily, because of the Broncos, you know, the system he's come through with the Broncos and you know, that's something Xavier's grateful for. I think going to Melbourne is certainly going to help his career, but, you know, he's also got that experience from
0: playing here at the Bronx to take to Melbourne with him. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just think he's going to go ahead in leaps and bounds um, next year, uh, which is fantastic for, for us, mate, for Queensland. I know you're you know, eligible for New South Wales, but, you know.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: um, I, I still chief. I tell it, Xavier that, you know, sorry, man, I know we're both PNG, but uh, I'm gone for New South Wales when you put on that Mariner's jersey. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's awesome. Well, you got it, right? You got it. That's where you grew yeah. up, so... You know, that's kudos to you. Mate, what was I am just conscious of time because I, I really appreciate you you catching up and having a chat. What was uh your time? There's a couple of things I really want to touch on. Are you okay for time? Yeah, all good, mate. Um, so there's a couple of things I want to really touch on. Um, so the first thing is mate, you could probably go to training and just um take the, the footage of you scoring a try when you gathered a grubber kick behind your back and put it down, mate. You know, that that try in 2011. I don't think anyone will ever forget that try. So just, just show him that as he's leaving, you know, just say, mate, you know, good luck trying to learn how to do this, big fella. Um, <laughs> that was an incredible try. But then the real thing I want to talk to you about is um, you being captain, named captain of your country, Papua New Guinea, for the 2017 World Cup what an honour that must have been for you. But then to run out in Port Moresby against Wales uh, and talk us through that experience, because whenever we've seen Australia go up to New Guinea to play, it's like the NRL or the rugby league players are treated like, you know, absolute heroes and, you know, it's, it's pandemonium up there. So what was it like representing your country in your home country, in a World Cup against Wales. And, mate, just for the record, little cheeky hat trick as well.
1: Yeah. The I mean, hat trick was nice, yeah. Uh, but, you know, mate, it's uh, hard to describe because, you know, when I was there, it, it didn't feel real. It was, yeah, right. Like, wow, this, uh, the World Cup's here in Port Moresby, you know, we're here. And, of uh, course, whenever you're driving everywhere, you see kids on the side of the road, you know, barefoot, uh, you know, shorts, singlet, like, like dirt, you know, all around their legs, up to their knees. And, you know, they're kicking a either a footy, if they're have a footy, they, it's an empty bottle. And that's everywhere, wherever you drive. And then it makes you remember as a kid what you used to do. And then when you're there, like, you know, you've got the Cornwall's jersey on, you know, people are taking photos of you. Everyone's asking for, you know, autographs and stuff like that. You're just like... Wow, this is a, you know just a kid who had a dream in a yeah. village not even in Port Moresby about half an hour out uh, you know hardly watched TV or anything like that um, you know, what what else is possible for you know all these kids you know so you kind of think of, it's not really for yourself but you're thinking of like uh, you know all the other kids playing the game are like this can be a the sport can be a great way out of you know this type of life. Uh, For kids It's tough over there But You know In terms of representing The the PNG And uh, Putting the jersey on In my I remember walking out And then um, You know Halfway line Looking up in the stands And like My family's I've got a big family And I gave them Heaps of tickets for the game And I could see all of them Standing I just had tears Coming down my eye You know uh, (laughs) The National Anthem Seeing the National Anthem um, Tenille was flying over To watch the game as well and she's holding my son, Paxton, who's, you know, asleep in her arms. He's just, <laughs> he's just worn out from the heat, <laughs> the humidity. Um, but it's, it's a really nice moment. You know, it's a very proud moment. Uh, you know, to be able to captain it, it, it is nice. It's a very, it's a huge honour, especially with the country that's a national sport. It's, it's a very nice feeling, but you know, it's so hard to describe. Uh, there's certainly plenty of emotions uh, running through your
0: whole body. Mate, I think you've done a beautiful uh, job of describing it because I've got goosebumps sitting here listening to you describe it. And that's how I would imagine it would be um, to be able to stand out there. And I was thinking about the national anthem before you spoke about it thinking how good must that be to stand there and out on the field. And I can imagine the whole crowd, just just the noise of them singing that anthem.
1: Yeah, mate, and the,
0: just the whole crowd seeing the national anthem. And then when it's finished,
1: uh, you know, you don't need any more motivation from yourself or anyone to catch the yeah. ball and run, you know. It, it, there's just so much energy that you're feeling within your body and it's it's just like, all right, kick this ball to me. I want to I run it, you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> poor old, uh, old Wales. They had no chance.
1: <laughs> well, you see, those guys, uh, you know, they, I don't think they had much preparation to um, – Training the heat and stuff like that, so there's probably like a huge disadvantage oh, for yeah. them as well. You know, I did feel for them because a lot of them come from England, you know, places like that where it's, the weather is completely different. Um, so, you know, but I thought they, you know, they handled themselves really well there. You now they did um, promotional work throughout the week, hospitals, school visits. That's awesome. And I, I, when I spoke to them after the game, they said, "Man, this is a different experience." You know, something I'll remember for the rest of my life, you know.
2: Yeah, that's awesome.
1: Score, yeah, scoreboard didn't matter after the game. It was just about the experience there and, you know, how the people felt and, you know, witnessing that. That was probably the best thing about the tournament.
0: And I think for me as a golfer, standing on the first tee at St Andrews at the old course in the European Tour Dunhill Links Championships was, was was it for me. You know, that's that, you know, that's the biggest tournament i I've played so far in my career, but standing on that tee and um, it's a pro-am event, so I'm with Kevin Peterson and Shane Warren standing on the side of the tee watching us tee off and, you know, you're at the old course at St Andrews. It's blowing. It's right on the ocean. It's, it's everything you dreamed as a young kid, you know, playing golf with a dream of being a pro golfer. You just wanted to be there at some stage and um, playing a big tournament. So I reckon it, that's kind of my parallel for what you went yeah. through.
1: Oh, certainly. I think we've all got those, you know, those highs. But it's something you work for all your life.
0: Yeah, you know, yeah. To be in that
1: moment, so I think, to actually be there and experience it. Everyone's got their own ambitions and goals. I think if you think about all the struggles that you went through to get there. Yeah. Um, they're probably the memories that, you know, that, that, that's what makes those, those moments so special.
0: And I think we're so blessed, David, in that, you know, we're doing – we're actually doing something we love, which is, you know, probably such a small percentage of the workforce could actually really genuinely say that, that, you know, they're doing something they they absolutely love and can get up and go to work every day knowing that, you know, Hey man, we, I'm going to play rugby league or I'm going to, you're going to play rugby league or I'm going to play golf as a, as a career. It's, it's quite special. Um, yeah. That's yeah. for sure. What about when we flip you over, you spoke about the Welsh guys coming and playing in the temperatures of Moresby. Um, what about for you, mate, when you went and played a couple of seasons in the Super League um, for the, the Catlin Dragons um, and their base but also travelling across the, the ditch into England and playing games in probably some pretty uh, chilly temperatures, I imagine?
1: Mate, my first game was in Hull I and mean, it snowed. <laughs> uh, and that was a warm up game in February. So,
0: had you seen snow before that? No, that was my first time ever.
1: Wow. So, we ran out of the stadium, and like, is like, you know, you see the white flakes coming down, the land on your hand, you're like, oh man, this is pretty cool. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, so this is pretty cool. We're playing in snow here. Yeah? And then, like, uh, five, 10 minutes later, I'm like, why did I come to England? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I've come from Brisbane all the way in and you're like, you're shaking. Um, Your hands are frozen. You're like, you're catching the ball and it hurts to catch the ball. Yeah, wow. And you're just like, what have I done? I'm in this for two years, two, three years, you know? Um, But like, you know, as the year goes on, you adapt to that. Uh, And then it's a summer throughout the year in France. So it actually gets pretty hot when you're playing. Yep. And then, you know, that's... Two months of the year it gets pretty cold, but you know, throughout the year, beautiful weather, um, and especially down south of France. You uh, know, I certainly enjoyed my time there. Yeah, cool. Uh, I, I'm glad I got to tick that box. It was something I always wanted to do. Um, well, yeah, and to do, to be able to do that, you know, doing something I love is it makes it even more special. So, I'm glad I got to tick that box, and uh, you know. Gave myself enough time to come back to the NRL and have a uh, another crack over
0: here. One of the things I struggled with incredibly in my time playing on tour in Japan, which I played a number of years up there, was the difficulty of not being able to speak the language. So I know that you know through listening to your chat with Will Gennier that you've got a little bit of French. Um, you learnt a little bit of the French language, but how tough was that to begin with?
1: Oh, mate, it was incredibly tough.
0: Um,
1: especially just doing all the, the little things, you know, paperwork, uh, trying to sell on a house for a, a lease for a new house. Uh, you did get help from the club, but, you know, you obviously want to have your independence and do as much sure. as you can, uh, like we do here in Oz. Uh, but more so for Tennille, because I was going to training every day and you know, half the, about 30 40% of the squad can speak English. Yep. And... Um, I was able to, you know, connect with people and uh, engage with them, you know, in training and stuff like that. But for Tanil, like, you know, the partners that travel over there, it's it's very hard for them because they're at home looking after the kids and taking the kids to school. Uh, sometimes the teachers don't speak French, uh, English, so uh, it can be a hard day for her. And you know, once you when you finish from training and you go home and uh, talking to her, a lot of the time you're trying to convince her about, uh, I'm trying to convince her about, you know, while we're there for a couple of years and yeah. you know, trying to enjoy it as much as you can. Uh, you know, it, it can get uh, frustrating. You you miss home, you miss your family. You could feel a bit homesick, but um, once you get through the past, you know, six, eight months, the first initial six, eight months, I think, uh, and you study the language, you start to, you know, enjoy it a fair bit more. If, if I did have my time over again, I would have studied French, you know, two, three hours a day for the first three months. That would make life a lot easier.
0: Yeah, okay. Speaking about Tennille, how important – it's just critical, isn't it? But so important for you to have such an incredible support behind you um, whilst you're, you know, chasing your dream of continuing to be a – Professional rugby league player because it doesn't last forever. Rugby league, does it? You know, I'm I'm very fortunate in my sport. I can still go out there and and compete now at 46 years of age. There's not many 46 year olds running around in the NRL. Um,
1: yeah, oh mate, that that support is uh, you know it's it's critical because you know uh, you know I was happy. Um, I'm happy, uh, and the kids are happy. You know, and. She's, you know, we've got to pack up and leave for, you know, because my career is so short, if I sign someone, she's just got to, you know, let go of her yeah uh, life and what she's doing. And and it's not just her, it's a, it's a lot of the partners in the N- NRL and, you know, many other sports and other professions you know, in the workplace as well. Now, having the support from your partner is, you know, incre- incredibly important. You know, I've been very lucky uh, to have someone that's supported me and she's always, you know, put my... Uh, career ahead of you know, anything else that we do. So you know, I'm certainly very grateful for it. I saw Alex then talking about, you know, the other day about the support that Gemma gave him throughout his career. Man, I, mean, I, I had tears coming down my eyes yeah. listening to him uh, tell that because they do sacrifice a lot. You know, um, your career is put first because it's, you know, you don't know how long it's going to last and you're both there trying to make the most of it uh, to support your family. So uh you know that's only like a small glimpse of you know what i'm talking about in terms of the support that's needed from a partner. It,
0: it, I, I I know Gemma, I've met Gemma through through golf years and years ago, but they're certainly a they're a part of the career aren't they? You know what I mean? So you know your career wouldn't and Alex's Alex Glenn's career it maybe doesn't maybe doesn't pan out the way they both have without these integral women uh in their in your lives who are not only your supporters as as um wives but also just play such a pivotal pivotal part in the uh the children's lives you know when you guys are off training every day and doing what you're doing
1: certainly mate it's uh, and it's easy to look past that because it just becomes like a daily thing you know and it's like it becomes normal what they do they're looking after the kids cooking um Uh, cooking a meal when, as soon as you get, you know, for me personally, I get home and she's prepared dinner. Um, You know, she looked after the kids all day, dropped them off at school, picked them up. They're heroes. And Oh, mate, they, if you, I think if you had to sit down and actually write a list of what they do, uh, it would blow your mind because a lot of the things they do, you you don't even think about until someone else brings them up, you know? Yeah. And then, um, yeah, that's when you start to, appreciate it because it, it it has to be a conscious effort to to appreciate all the things that they're doing yeah uh to so that you can you know be grateful for um the support that they bring
0: no i agree and i think the nrl has done that well in the last few years introducing their women in league rounds to you know to pay a massive tribute to the women that uh you know a part of the game and allow you guys to do what you do. And, and I certainly know, you know, for me playing on tour for um, eight to 10 years and being away from home 20 plus weeks a year on tour, uh, yeah, man, without the caliber of woman that I have in Rach, she's, um, she's without a doubt the rock of this family. And, you know, I've just come and gone over those years. And, you know, as though you might, even though you might be providing that financial, um, support for the family, the the I, I never underestimate the work Rachel's done to bring my boys up and my daughter up and and be the support I need when I needed it as well. So,
2: yeah, mate, that's sure. awesome
0: that um, to hear that it's the same in rugby league circles. And, you know, to all the women out there, we thank you for being the support that you are to all of us.
1: Yeah, 100%. I think, that, you know, the financial side,
0: yeah, it's, we do bring it in,
1: but you know, I look at it and go, man, you, you worked nine ten hours today yeah you know, looking after the boys uh, making sure that they're well fed yeah well looked after dropped off at school so it's uh, it's certainly a 50-50 effort yeah um, and it's as as athletes and as people in the workforce it has to be a conscious effort to you know, sit down and even if you have to write it down to recognize uh, all the things that they do you know
0: I think for you guys too, there's the added, like, this is different for Rach when I'm playing in an Australian open and she's watching it on telly, you know, there's no risk that I'm going to end up most likely there's no risk that I'm going to end up in hospital or with broken ribs or, you know, a bad head knock or, or a a season ending or career ending injury. Like we've seen with, you know, guys like um, friend and, you know, a couple other boys with some, some head knocks. Um, We haven't seen, Kiri for a couple of seasons really with some serious head knocks um, whereas you guys they get they have to sit through a game every week as well and hope that their husband's coming home in one piece
1: yeah i think uh, they certainly do get uh worried you know, gets worried when you know if I've been ever injured and gone into the you know taken off the field um, that must be tough but, yeah it certainly is tough work isn't it? As soon as I go pick my phone up, I've had you know a couple of missed calls and you know text messages from her. Mm. But um, you know, our wellbeing officer normally lets them know. Yeah, that's great. It,
0: it certainly wouldn't be
1: easy for them to you know see that and you know how to respond to it. You know.
0: Yeah. No. Absolutely. Well, mate, we might wrap this up, but thank you very much. Just one, uh, one last little thing. You're um. Your new coach, well, coach at the Broncos this year. You arrived back this year, and so Kevy Walters' first year. You're back this year. Uh, just a quick word on Kevy and how he's been as a coach. You've had a few coaches over your career, so how's how's playing under Kevy Walters been this year?
1: Yeah, Kevy's been good. You know, I got here in January, and he um, laid out the. He brought in a lot of um, former Broncos uh, to have a chat to the guys. I thought that was something, you know, pretty cool and pretty unique that uh, I haven't seen many coaches in the past do.
0: Was the Pearl uh, there, mate? Uh, no, he wasn't. So, oh. But I have
1: not met the Pearl before and I was starstruck. Yeah, I'll bet. yeah. <laughs> Very nice guy. Um, but, yeah, so Kevy brought in a couple of former players to, you know, talk about, you know, what's expected of, you know, the players and – how we need to handle ourselves at training, and it's a very young squad. Yeah. Um, you know, when I first got here, I couldn't believe how many young young guys there were. And so he's coming. I uh, come into the in January, and he has made it clear that you know we need to be able to bring this club back to where it was. You know, it may not be this year, but we that's what we're building towards. So yeah, it has been a tough year for you know the playing squad and Kevy, um, but you know, the last few weeks have shown that, you know, some of the work that we're putting in throughout the year, we're starting to see the fruits of that. So absolutely, you know, he, he's, to, he's telling us to stay patient, stay positive, and, you know, to make sure that we keep working hard. So, you know, and to finish the year strong, to finish the year positive, because we, we want to have a good pre-season after this. And, you know, obviously perform a lot better than uh, what we have uh, this year. So... He's, he's painting that picture for the boys and I think he's doing a good job
0: there. I think winning, you know, winning a couple of the games in the last few weeks and just being competitive, you know, mate, we talk about it all the time at work with all the boys in the golf shop and we've all got our teams we support and the Broncos fans in the shop. We, we've we just been so encouraged by, you know, the last month of footy from you blokes. And, you know, just to see that, you um, Yes, you guys, not us, but you guys are starting to reap a few rewards for the year-long effort that you've put in and potentially learning the new structures and learning how Kevi wants it to roll out. And and obviously some player change throughout the year as well, players departing through the season and players being signed elsewhere and you guys coming in and guys getting contract extensions like yourself for next year. Um so, you know, it's encouraging for you guys, I'm sure, when you start to see a few results. And, and I think those good results are really important for a young group, right?
1: Certainly. I think uh, you know, a lot of the re-signings that are done for you know the next year and uh, beyond, average age is around you know, 2021. 20, uh, yeah. you know, I'm excited for this squad to be uh, put together over the next few years to see what they can do. Because, mate, when I got here in... January, I was seeing how the guys train, and I was like, man, this is like a new breed of athletes here, you know, in the gym, strong on a whole new level. Yeah, right. Um, Fitness-wise, um, you know, they applicate their, how they apply themselves at training and, you know, their their attitude towards training. It's the best I've ever seen wow. in my whole career. Wow. And Because I think, you know, they're born in at such a young age, 15, 16, and, you know, they're put in a good training regime. Told that this is the how you need to prepare yourself. How you need to be. Uh, how you need to be. You know, mentally um, going to training, approaching each day. So that's a credit to the guys that are in the squad now. And you know, you add a little bit of football experience to the to that. It's
0: going to be a. You know, it's going to be exciting to
1: uh, to see that these group of guys uh, grow over the next few years.
0: Yeah, mate. Well, you've got me excited now. I can tell you. And, and Benny Icon coming on board, mate. He's one of my good buddies. I've taught him a fair bit of golf over the years. Um, he's uh, he seems like he knows what he's doing.
1: Well, he's a very smart guy, Benny. You know, ever since he's uh, come in, he's you know, he's he's making the guys feel like um, you know their potential is there. Um, he's, he's laying out a uh, a path where the guys can see that, you know, this is how we're, you know, he, him and Kevi and the coaching staff, that you know, they're laying out a, a path that and showing the guys that, you know, this is how we're going to get ourselves from where, where we are now and how, we, how we're going to get there. So a uh, very smart guy, Benny, uh, also very nice as well. And,
0: you know, we certainly love having him around. Mate, I was talking to him the other week and I was saying, mate, you must be in your element because you've got, this intellectual you know he's just an intellectual guy right he's one of the yeah. smartest like when you're coaching him golf he will be the guy that comes back the next week and he's gone away and he's researched everything you've taught him the week before and he comes back and he's got all the numbers all the facts all the data on what you're taught him the week before right so if you're yeah. not up to speed you just get found out very very quickly but I said to him, mate, surely you getting in that computer, you've got a, you've got spreadsheets galore on your on your screens, and you're just in and it's all about football. And you're in just yeah. football heaven. You've got your spreadsheets, you've got your football. It's just and he just he just it's laughed. He goes, surprising. absolutely correct. You're spot on, Maddie. I'm loving it. Yeah. So doesn't surprise me.
1: He's a very smart guy, very nice. But uh, what, what's his handicap?
0: Is he, he must be he uh, <laughs> I don't know around. what he is at the moment, but he certainly we were trying to get him down to, we had to get his handicap down to, I think, two for him to get a start in the Queensland PGA Championships. So the Queensland yeah. PGA had decided they'll give him a start if we can get him down to two. And they, you know, came out and filmed and documented the program of me coaching him and trying to get him down to two. And then we got him down to that handicap so that he could play in the tournament. So we teed it up together in the tournament. And, um, yeah, it was fantastic. And, and, you know, unfortunately he didn't play so well in the tournament. He, he was so nervous and, you know, it was great to have him in my world for a little bit, you know, and um, yeah. you know, and that's, I mean, we're forever saying that the beauty of golf is that um, it's a sport where we can introduce other people from sporting codes into our code. Like I can't be introduced into your code to go play, you know, yeah. like you put me out on the field with the Broncos on the weekend and I'm going to be destroyed in one tackle. <laughs> you know, if I get, uh, I, I, oh gosh, if I get anyone tackle me, it's all over. Mate, you could tackle me and it'd be the end of the end of my game. But um,
2: yeah, okay. so we're really very fortunate with
0: we can introduce you guys into our sport. And I think I was playing with at that tournament at St. Andrews, I was walking down the famous road hole 17th, And I was playing that day with Kevin Peterson was my partner, but I was also um, paired up with a South African pro and his partner was Jacques Callis, you know, who's obviously, well, arguably the greatest all rounder in the history of, of cricket, I would say. And um, we'd both hit these great tee shots on 17, the road hole around the corner of the hotel. And then we've got the second shot into the green, which is difficult. And we both hit it on the green. And whilst we were walking down the hole, I turned to Jacques and I said to him, mate, what is this like for you? You know, like here we are, it's the home of golf. We're at the famous road hole 17th. And you've hit it on the green for two. I said, what's this like? And he genuinely said to me, he goes, Matty, this is my favorite sporting moment of my life. Right. That's that's unbelievable. Dave. I reckon like, hang on a second. I said to him, mate, what are you talking about? You've, Helped South Africa win test matches. Um, you've played in massive World Cups in, in the one day game. You've taken clutch wickets and you've scored amazing centuries and you've stood on the field at Lords, the home of cricket. And, and I said, This is unbelievable. He goes, Yeah, but you can't do that. You know, I'm here playing in a five, you know, alongside the pros while they're playing for five million euros or whatever it was. And he said, You can't come and do that. You can't come and field in the slips at Lords with us. You know, like it's just incredible, and and yeah, it's just a we're blessed, and and it's great to have you guys be able to come and spend time in those environments with us as professionals in inside whilst we're playing tournaments. It's um it's pretty cool. So mate, once your rugby league career finishes, um, mate, we'll just sharpen up the golf skills and we'll get you out there in an Australian Open Pro Am, mate.
1: It's uh, a major tournament, eh? <laughs>
0: Absolutely, mate. You can come (laughs) over and play the New Zealand Open and uh, partner up with me and we'll have a great time. So, David, I've just got one final question I'd like to ask all of the people on my podcast. If you could be one one sports person, past or present, and live a day in their shoes, who would it be? And what day would you live in those shoes? I've
1: got a few sports. That I've you know watched from back in the day. Uh, Michael Jordan's one, Muhammad Ali's the other. Oh yeah. Um, and Roger Federer. So it will be one of one of those three guys.
0: Mate, you can't sit on the fence.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll go with Michael Jordan just because he's, the documentary came out recently.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, on Netflix there. I'd love to see you know, how he approached each, uh, you know, just how, just what his thoughts were. Yeah, right. Like coming into the NBA, uh, uh, coming into the league, especially when he was uh, first starting out because, you know, he was a superstar of the game. Uh, you know, he could do anything until he got to the Detroit Pistons, you know, the bad boy Pistons. And then he couldn't, he wasn't able to get his team past these guys. So I want to know what he changed from that to go and on, on to absolutely dominate them. Yeah. Over the next couple of years, I think I I think that'd be pretty cool to you now put myself in those shoes and go, um, wow, this is the way he thought and the way he approached training, how he prepared,
0: you know. Yeah, I think that's awesome. Cool. And I think you know more and more we're getting insights into some of that stuff these days, like. You know, some of the – I mean, even the West Tigers doco that's happening at the moment, um, I just love it. I think there's Premier League teams doing it, and I'd love to see more teams, you know, doing that and allowing the cameras to come in and, you know, just capture some of that stuff to see the absolute, you know, goats of their sport and what it is that makes them that way. And I think we'll continue to see more and more of that in our sport, which is awesome. And, you know, that's the stuff that, as – professional sportsman i love chatting to all of my guests because i always learn from you guys you know and not only learn about rugby league but i learn about things i can apply to my own life um and my own um code so you know i think the more and more we get to see some of stuff like that and get into the minds of the michael jordans the roger Federers, the rafa nadal's the you know um lewis hamiltons at the moment you know this absolute elite of world sports in their code is is fantastic yeah. and i think yeah. channel 7 did an amazing job of that through the olympics in 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 delivering some of that for us through their interviewing of our athletes in in tokyo
1: yeah i think mate if you think about the 10 to 15 year olds watching all these documentaries now yeah how good are they going to be when they get to the age of it's incredible you know, 18, isn't it 18 yeah. to 25
0: yeah. It's just, I mean, even, even sharing, as I said, I shared with my boys at the dinner table tonight about your chat with Will Genia, and um, on the David Mead podcast, for those of you who haven't listened yet, get on board, hit the subscribe button, you know, and, uh, and, and have a listen. It's awesome stuff. Um, but I just thought when, when Will was talking about it and then you, Um, validated that yourself in that it's just the extras doing the extras doing the extras doing the extras doing the extras extras. and that's what the best of the best do you know um they don't have to be asked to do the extras they do the extras because they want to be the best yeah and um i agree i I I think that lesson
1: to this day i i I, I do my extras and then some days i do my training do a little bit extras and then when i see the results of that like a couple of weeks later i'm like why didn't I just keep doing these extras like consistently every day, you know, yeah. over, over since I started playing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's certainly a great lesson, you know, uh, something that I learned from Will and he certainly reminded me of that from, you know, all the coaches that I've heard that from throughout the years.
0: I think one of the things that Will said, which sort of I thought was awesome was that when you first start doing the extras, you got to think about doing the extras. But then, when you get to a certain point where you've done the extras every day, that just becomes the norm, yeah. You know. And I heard Trent Robinson from um, the Roosters coach talking about James Tedesco in their post-match um, press conference on the weekend, and and James ran for some in- insane amount of meters, um, and he said they asked him about it, and he said, "Well, you know, it's just what James does, right? It's extraordinary, but it's just what James does, you know. Yeah. And it's because he just does it every week, and so." the extras for James Tedesco now just becomes the ordinary, the expected yeah. from the coaches. And that's a, mate, dream that's dream a dream. great lesson for all the kids out there listening into the podcast and, and looking to, whether it's sport or whether it's singing, you know, just to do the extras. And if you do the extras now, it becomes easy later on. Certainly. Mate, thank you so much for spending some time with me tonight, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, it's, I hope you've enjoyed sitting in the other chair. And not being the interviewer. Um, uh, yes. Thank you.
1: It's
0: it's been an absolute privilege having you on, mate. And I'm uh I'm I'm wishing you and all the boys at the Broncos the best over the next couple of weeks and through your preseason. And mate, I'm a diehard Broncos fan, so I'll be supporting you all through next year in 2021 and a push for some finals footy next year, I hope.
1: Yeah, uh that's the plan anyway. Thanks, matey, mate. I appreciate uh, you having me on. Um, I love your work. Uh, it's been a great interview. It's made me think of uh, things I haven't thought about in the, in the past. So uh, I really certainly appreciate it.
0: Oh, mate, it's been a pleasure having you. And thanks so much for sharing some of the intimate details of your life as well, mate. That's what makes this uh, special when, when people open up. So thanks so much for your time and I wish you all the best. And I look forward to catching up on the golf course, mate, once your uh, season's over.
1: Thanks, matey. I, I I look forward to the next golf game.
0: <laughs> See you, mate.
1: Thanks, mate.